0: Hey, it's me, Ben, and this is Real Beasts. It's been a while. We've had a strange summer. I've done some soul-searching. I wondered if I was even a good enough paleontologist to have this podcast. But I've emerged on the other side. And now, it's time for an episode, recorded back in June. Prior to our visit to the movie theater to watch Jurassic World Dominion, David and I sat down to discuss Roland Emmerich's 2008 film, 10,000 B.C., For some reason, this episode gave me an extreme case of editor's block. My computer crashed towards the end of the episode, and despite having backup audio, I felt strangely daunted by the prospect of fixing it. Turns out it wasn't so bad, I just had to sit down and get started. You will notice a change in audio quality when the backup audio kicks in, but it's perfectly listenable. So without any further delay, and you'll know what I mean shortly, please enjoy this episode on 10,000 BC. Hello and welcome back to this summary edition of the Real Beast
1: podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Ben. My name is David. Thank you all for joining us for episode two of our uh, second season of real beasts. We're so happy to have you all back. Now, Ben, today we're going to be talking about yet another movie that features ancient beasts. However, this time we are straying from our roots. There are no dinosaurs in this film. And honestly, thank God, because if there had been any dinosaurs in this one, it just would have been even worse than it (laughs) already was. That's true. It's (laughs) hard
0: to imagine this film being worse, but if it had dinosaurs, it would have been. I suppose you could say that... It did have the terror birds, which are dinosaurs too, mm, but... A good point, yeah. Equally the out of space and made. time. The movie we watched for today was Roland Emmerich's 2008 film 10,000 BC. Indeed. Which means 10,000 oh. bad crap.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, this was not particularly good. Um, there were certain things that were fine. It looked pretty. Uh, it was clear there was a lot of money behind this movie because the CGI effects and everything, I think, all looked pretty good. You know, looking back at 2008, that's kind of a long time ago now. But yeah. the, the effects still hold up and stuff. But, like, do we give a shit about the effects when a movie is this ridiculous? No, I don't think so. Yeah,
0: it had sort of a, <laughs> a glossy CGI that I consider to be the hallmark of the the aughts CGI era, mm-hmm. where there was lots of effects that we think of as being like, "Wow, what amazing effects!" Mm-hmm. None of them look real, but they yeah. do look good. Yeah, and I think that's that, a good that way was of an putting interesting it. thing because I think, for example, the original Jurassic Park looks real. Mm -hmm. in some of the nighttime CGI of the T-Rex, for example, in the rain. Yeah. But then I actually feel like things started looking less realistic, but they look different and also pleasing. So it's kind of like other lots of disaster movies that were coming out with tons Mm -hmm. of CGI tsunamis and all sorts of things like that. They don't really look very real, but it still looks cool. And I kind of feel like that's the CGI vibe this movie had.
1: I agree. And, you know, it's interesting because this – uh, the, the guy who wrote or co-wrote and then directed this movie, Roland Emmerich, he's done a lot of those like kind of disaster movies that are sort of the hallmark of this kind of uh, computer-generated chaos and action and adventure. He You might know Roland Emmerich also directed uh, Independence Day. He also wrote Independence Day, uh, the 2004 movie, Day After Tomorrow. Where Dennis Quaid um, runs away from cold. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, he did the 1998 Godzilla with Matthew Broderick, where Godzilla attacks New York City, which is a not good movie that Ben and I both still We insist both really is good. like that movie, yeah.
0: <laughs> but this movie is not good for different reasons. It's not that it's just yes. silly, because we're not snobs into not liking movies that are silly. Like, yeah. we love a silly movie. This movie just has some sort of aggressively in poor taste trope usages. Yeah. And just a plot that makes little sense. And considering the awesome backdrop that they had and all the amazing Mm -hmm. scenes that they had available to them in terms of let's just make this fictional pseudo-ice age-ish world and Mm -hmm. make it look really awesome both with on-set locations and CGI, I feel like it's a missed opportunity to have made... A movie that could have been equally silly, but just less awful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. This is this is a, a movie that dates itself in a way that is really hard to get over. I mean, this is the this is the the definition of a white savior narrative. Yeah. Uh which is l- let's talk about what a white savior narrative is really quickly, because I feel like in our time of Twitter and Instagram slideshows and shit like we've all probably heard of the idea of a white savior narrative but let's talk about what it is really quickly so it essentially is there's a couple of different versions of it there is the inspirational teacher white savior story and there's the man of principle white savior story um but we've we've all seen movies that have some aspect of a white person comes in to save a not white person whether that not white person needed saving or not, or maybe could have saved themselves or whatever. doesn't matter. A white person comes in and in, in intrusively saves the day uh, in these movies. And this is, I mean, there's tons of examples of this. There's 12 Years a Slave, uh, the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson, except it's kind of, the movie's more about Branch Rickey, who is the white man who owns the Brooklyn Dodgers, who tries to get a black player jackie robinson going so uh branch ricky would be the white savior um of course we all know the movie the blind side uh more recently there was green book um these are all stories that are have some white character coming in saving the day i found a list of white savior movies and they're like don't forget movies like blood diamond dances with wolves uh dune is one that recently has been getting some flack for that although it can be argued that the book actually does some interesting things with the white savior story and trying to turn it on its head um movies like glory road um i already mentioned green book but the help hidden figures you know we've all seen all types of movies like this right um, so 10,000 B.C., how do you do a white savior story in 10,000 B.C.? Well, well, let us tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. 12,000 years ago when this movie was set, were there any white people? I don't uh, know. <laughs> this is,
0: uh, I actually don't know. Um, I guess it depends on how you define that. Yeah. Which, I'm, uh, sure I'm that... not an anthropologist, a biological anthropologist, uh, because this stuff is far too recent for me. So it's funny yeah. because I feel just with sort of ice age things in general, I can uh, sometimes fall prey to the same sort of time averaging that mm-hmm. people do with dinosaur age stuff, where like everything kind of blends into the same time. I don't really know right. when things happened with lots of nuance. So I actually. Found this to be a bit of an adventure because I was like, "Well, when did this thing live? I don't know." Yeah. And as we saw some creatures in the film, it took me a second to really contextualize whether or not this made little sense
1: or zero sense, because those right. are the two options available in this movie. Right. Yeah. So, like, really quickly, let's let's set the scene of at least for for humans, what was going on in 10,000 BC. So this is 10,000 BC is obviously 10,000 years before the common era which is i guess the common era started we think when jesus was around which is how we date things so 12,000 years ago what was humanity up to uh mostly kind of just starting to settle down just starting to produce agriculture just starting to instead of being hunter gatherer nomadic tribes people uh or human civilization was kind of just in its infancy just kind of starting but like you said, I was really confused about, okay, well, okay, humans are doing that. Like, this is mm-hmm. the time of, like, ancient, ancient, ancient Egypt, you know, uh, Mesopotamia, you know, these, these very, very beginnings of human societies. Nobody can write yet, uh, as far as I am aware, or as far as I think we know. Uh, writing hasn't happened yet. Cave paintings are a thing. But other than that, like, we find little bits and shards of stuff, artifacts, Um, but the animals, I mean, what kinds of animals existed 12,000 years ago that, that, that you found on your journey, Ben?
0: Well, it depends on where this is supposed to be set. And I don't really think that there's an answer to this question. I thought this was supposed to be set somewhere in Europe or Mesopotamia or maybe Mm -hmm. in kind of Eastern Europe slash Western Asia like Russia. It could be anywhere in there, but the types of organisms that were around were basically any ice age animal from anywhere on the planet, including things that also went extinct before 10,000 BC, like the terror birds that Mm -hmm. we'll talk about as we go through the film. But I think that for the sake of keeping our audience in a sense of understanding what the heck we're talking (laughs) about, we should attempt our, Ten minutes or fewer, plot synopsis.
1: Yeah, that's a good idea. So, circa ten thousand BC, this movie starts. Uh, ben, do you want to try and give a rundown really quickly of sort of the how this movie is set <laughs> up? Yep, because it it's starts ridiculous. with uh, <laughs> one of
0: my least favorite things, which is voiceover talking about a prophecy. So this movie has about 18 prophecies, but actually yeah. it, ha- it actually has like four. It's unbelievable. But yeah. it starts with like, here we will tell the tale of a young hunter named Delay and the prophecy of the girl with the blue eyes. And I'm like, oh, the girl with the blue eyes. So it's probably yeah. going to be like the uh, <laughs> some white girl creating either some Helen of Troy situation where it like launches a thousand ships (laughs) or just some other kind of thing where like, she's like the coveted one amongst all these people. So that's a good start. Yeah. And guess what, Ben, you're right on both counts. Yeah. and like (laughs) So there's like the, the legend or like the prophecy of this girl with the blue eyes. And there's also the hero's journey that this guy delay goes under. And Mm -hmm. so he's kind of like a, Neither here nor there, hunter guy in this hunter gatherer society. Yeah, not His, a lot going for him. He's, yeah, he's kind of there. He's just kind of there. He's not the fastest. He's not the strongest. He's not the smartest. His dad is this very noble character, but he doesn't believe in this prophecy that also has to do with the timing of this final hunt that will occur of the mammoths, which are called Manuks. In this yep. movie for no reason besides to just make them more anciently sounding. Yeah. Like We can't just call them mammoths. We have to call them manux. It has yeah, to sound kind of like mammoth. Indigenous word
1: for it. Yeah. Let's come up with a
0: fake. Yeah. Anyway. So the last hunting of the manux. then there will be the four legged demons that arrive and Uh-oh. signal this massive change in society. And, you know, when this young girl, the girl with the blue eyes named Evelet, stumbles into town, all of her people have been killed by these four-legged demons, which we know through these sort of psychic flashes with one of the village elders who touches her head and kind of sees what happened to her through mm-hmm. magic, basically.
1: Yeah, there's this, this movie sort of sometimes confused me because I was like, is magic? I know. Like, are they establishing magic is real in this movie? Yeah. They don't really... It's... Say yay or nay, but the like old medicine woman. I, well, I don't yeah. know what she's supposed to like. The spiritual mother of their tribe seems to be able to do magic.
0: <laughs> yeah, old mother Somehow. can do magic. The four legged demons are horses with sort of white people on them. Kind I guess. Of. Yeah, who it's have hard come to in tell and...
1: throughout this movie. Yeah, there's a lot
0: of like really sloppy play. And the reason why I care about this is because it actually matters to the plot. Yeah. And and to the way we interpret it. It's not just like, Oh, well I'm just like fixated on knowing if they're white people or not. It's like, well, it matters because it's propelling the plot in a way that determines a lot about how this sits with audiences. Yeah. A Um, big
1: part of this story is like different cultural groups who are, who are having their, citizens kidnapped by another cultural group Mm -hmm. and these cultural groups have to come together to try and get their people back and so it matters that it is different people of different backgrounds doing this stuff but this movie is not very good at handling any of those things with any sort of care or compassion or (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, definitely like not. Or even uh, just the, the the desire to be clear about what the hell is going on. Yeah,
0: it, a lot of <laughs> it is it's just like a, it's like you just took all of this complicated social stuff and you just put it in a Vitamix blender. Yeah. And we're just going to spit like... it out. And then it turns out that <laughs> they missed a spot in the blending quite badly in the sense that they just have all the white people, constantly the ones that are uniting all of these tribes of non-white people, Yep. Under these prophecies, which means they're the chosen ones. And despite anything anyone does, because that's the way chosen one prophecies work, no matter what the machinations are, it will end up being that everyone needs to follow them
1: and they are the key to everybody's success and transcendence. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is a big tenet of that white savior story. There's a prophecy in Dune. There's a prophecy Mm -hmm. in Harry Potter. There's a, you know, these yeah. kinds of things are, are baked into these types of stories. So it's not, this story is not particularly original. Oh, another one I oh, forgot yeah. to mention, Avatar. It's oh. another yeah. example of Holy this type crap. of story. Yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> yeah, so like, um, I'm just going to speed through some of these major points, which is that then a bunch of years go by, Evelette, the blue-eyed girl, as well as this hunter Delay have been in love this whole time, but Delay doesn't sort of have, I guess, quote unquote, the right to her because he's not the leader of this group of hunters. And so they have to go through this
1: physically strong to claim your woman. I know.
0: Yeah. They, they say a lot of (laughs) stuff like that and they have to kind of go through this moment where they have this hunting of the manics. Mm -hmm. All the hunters are trying to kill a manic and whoever does will sort of like win Evelette. And,
1: there's a And narrative. leadership of the tribe, too, right? I think that's... I think it's so. It's both... You, if you get the mammoth or the manuk, you get to marry Evelet for some reason. You get the white spear. And you also get to lead... Oh, yeah, you get the white spear, which is the you become the leader the of coolest the... coolest one. Oh, the, oh Yagal, it's a white which spear. Is their tribe. Interesting. Oh, yeah, it's a white spear, too. I didn't even think about that. Jesus Christ.
0: <laughs> and then... Uh, There's this narrative that's sort of superimposed, which is that Delay's father didn't think that they could wait around for this prophecy to happen because he didn't believe in it. So he went out on his own to try to find an area where there could be food for the tribe, but everyone Mm -hmm. thinks he just deserted them as a coward, whereas in reality, he was really trying to help them, but he didn't want to undermine the old mother by basically calling her out. So mm-hmm. he just went, everyone thinks he's a coward. He's actually not. So then, you know, Delay has that extra weight on his shoulders as being the son of, quote unquote, a
1: coward. Yeah. Yeah. He's sort of ostracized a little bit within the Yagal tribe uh, yeah. for having this father who was supposed to be their leader and he ditched them. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's already a lot going on in this plot when, a lot did not need to be going on in this plot. <laughs> no, that's
0: like, that's almost enough stuff. But instead, it becomes complete chaos because during the hunting of the Manics, his hand gets stuck in a net and he's pulled towards the Manic. And then, mm-hmm. basically, just by standing there, the Manic falls on his spear. He doesn't actually bravely <laughs> yeah. fight it. It looks like he kills it. Everyone celebrates him. He gets the white spear, but then his mentor, Tick-Tick knows what really <laughs> happened, and he's not really feeling great about this. So Delay ends up giving back the White Spear. And before any more of these things can happen, they are attacked by the white people on horseback. who the four-legged demons. Four-legged demons. They enslave. Who had been
1: prophesied.
0: Yep, the prophecies come true to this point. They come through. They burn everything. They kill lots of people. They take Evelet as well as lots of other members of the tribe,
1: and then they mm-hmm. leave. Yeah, so there there's sort of delay. So so to to recap, this is <laughs> this is probably twenty minutes into the movie, not even. Uh, Delay's dad was the leader of the tribe. He left to find a better place for them all to live because the mammoths are coming fewer and fewer each mm-hmm. year. So there's like a climate or some kind of ecological thing going on as, as part of this story. Then there's the prophecy that the the old mother of the tribe made. Then Evelet, the girl with the blue eyes, whose side note, the actress who plays Evelet does not have blue eyes. She has brown eyes. But they gave her blue contacts. And
0: double side note, it's the girl who gets attacked by the Komsignathuses in the Lost <laughs> yes. World Jurassic Park, which we it's just right. found out like 10 minutes ago, and it blew my mind. <laughs>
1: That's right. She's got double... She's actually uh, been featured many times on Real Beasts at this yeah, point. Yeah, unbelievable. That's so <laughs> wild to me. So then there's also uh, Tick-Tick, who is Delay's like dad's friend and Delay's mentor and like helps him out and he's wise and he's older and whatever. Played by Cliff Curtis. Exactly. Then there is Ka-Ren. His name's Karen, who (laughs) is... Ka-Ren is like Delay's rival. He was like bullying Delay when they were kids for his dad being a coward and leaving them and all this shit. Uh, I just got a kick out of realizing his name is K-A apostrophe R-E-N. And I was like, they pronounce it Ka-Ren. His name's Karen. And he acts like a real Karen in this movie too. He does, but it doesn't pay off.
0: It never really like this. This whole history of them being rivals (laughs) ends up just being nothing and Karan ends up just being like oh yeah take uh, uh
1: delay you're, you're fine yeah that was it there's a lot of things like that in this movie where things are set up like they're gonna be some reveal or some it's gonna come back later and it doesn't it just doesn't yeah but let's and continue with let's this continue
0: story. yeah and I'll, I'll do it <laughs> fast I've promised this before but this time for real <laughs> so they basically go to you know, a select crew of these men from the Yagal go to chase their people back. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Evelette leaves just a couple of little clues, like necklaces and stuff, down so they can help mm-hmm. track them through the snow, which they call the White Rain. More it's just like super tropey stuff.
1: Reminds me of like uh, in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, when Mary and Pippin have been kidnapped by the Urukai. And they're, like, dropping their leaves of Lothlorien and stuff. Oh, yeah, it's just uh, like, it's just like that. For Eric uh, and Collins. that's basically yeah. the
0: only time she's not a complete damsel in distress.
1: Yes. That's oh, yeah. The,
0: that's it. It's, like, there's never any, like, real moment where she does anything besides is beautiful and is, like, the... <laughs> what do you call it? The uh, She is the... um I can't remember the the silly term for the thing the uh, that makes what, what things are, happen.
1: What are you talking about?
0: The MacGuffin.
1: The MacGuffin. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly it. No, she is the MacGuffin. They're She's like the oh, a prophecy. Yeah, everything about is yeah. Her it's with her blue eyes. That. Something so then they, about her blue eyes will charge the story forward. But actually, no. It's just her being kidnapped. It's just her things resisting. happening to her. Is what pushes the plot forward. Yeah, because delay has to go save the day. <laughs> yeah, and all
0: these, and even there's like infighting amongst the horse raiders because they want to be the one that ends up with her, and all this other stuff, and somewhat yeah, protecting her. Yeah, everybody's really are
1: lusting after this gal, and it's like very, yeah,
0: fucking weird. It's it's definitely pretty <laughs> intense on that. They they keep following them through many biomes including walking into a steaming jungle where they're suddenly like it's hot and it's like yeah that's the whole point of establishing that shot you have to say it yeah. and they're you attacked. came from
1: an ice age wasteland and now you're in a jungle <laughs> it's gonna be ice a little age different wasteland
0: <laughs> um and they are attacked by humongous terror birds
1: in love there, them. which is kind of cool, but then I love terror birds, but they're not supposed to be there.
0: <laughs> no, they're not. Terror birds <laughs> lived in South America, and they were extinct by ten thousand B.C. Uh, Oops. So there's there's one inaccuracy there, but so they keep going. Delay tries to help Tick Tick, who is wounded. He falls into a pit that fills with rain, where he rescues a saber toothed cat, and he says, "Please don't eat me if I set you free." And and it doesn't. And it doesn't.
1: And, and fact, then later, that they, causes like...
0: oh, another prophecy to fulfill <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> as they come across a tribe of people who have a prophecy that they need to follow the person who can speak to the Spear Tooth because the Saber Tooth mm-hmm. comes back around, sees Delay, remembers that he's the one that freed him, and for some reason that makes no sense, decides just to like look at him and then walk away.
1: Yeah. And the people of this new tribe, the Naku uh see this moment happen or like, oh my god, you spoke to this they call it the speartooth, the mm-hmm. the saber tooth cat, the, the smilodon. Um and they're like, oh, whoever talks to the Smilodon will help free our people. And oh guess what? Some of the people of the Naku tribe have also been kidnapped by those four legged demons. Mm-hmm. And like, hey maybe we should team up and like go try and get our people back. Great. Yep. And then they kind of form a coalition with a few other tribes, which is like, there's like, there's roots of a good story in this story. They they could have done something really interesting. They could have done something kind of subversive about people of different backgrounds coming together to to help those who are less fortunate or who need help. But this story just isn't no. It's and not of the good notes, version of this story. <laughs> like,
0: even amongst the Yagal people, Delay is, like, the whitest dude. Yeah. Then, when they encounter all these other tribes along their journey, he is definitely the whitest dude.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like, Delay is the whitest dude of the Yagal tribe, and the Yagal tribe is the whitest tribe of yep. all of the tribes that end up. forming a coalition. And
0: Evelette (laughs) is the whitest woman of all of them and has blue (laughs) eyes. Yeah. (laughs) And all of these tribes of black people that they encounter instantly are like, we have to follow this guy because of all of our prophecies aligning Mm -hmm. to follow this one dude. And they end up leading to, again, another thing that seems totally like... what why do we have so many different plots going on? Because they head to, they realize that all these kidnapped people that the raiders are going to are heading towards these folks that I think we're supposed to assume are Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And their leader is sort of a god king known as the Almighty, who is straight up like a, an absolutely white person, like yeah. almost suggesting albinism.
1: It's, it's very strange because the... The set design and the costume design is doing a lot of work in trying to differentiate all these different groups of people and show that they come from different cultures. And then casting came in and was like, well, this group of people is going to be all black characters. This group's going to be all like brown people. And then this group is like white people, but with dreads. So you know that they're ancient white people. (laughs) Right. It's like, OK, the main character uh, delay is played by a dude. I looked this up. He's half Italian, which is a which is another trope in casting in Hollywood history is like, oh, we need someone who can play a brown person, cast a, an Italian American or like a half Italian person, because that's somehow more believable. It's atrocious. It's ridiculous, but it's very consistent with what Hollywood has done for what 70 80 100 years now yeah. in their casting practices it's ridiculous but yeah so they get to this well i guess uh, there's another clue that these this where the the raiders are taking all of these kidnapped people is egypt because they end up putting all the kidnapped people onto boats mm-hmm. and they sail up a river through a desert mm-hmm. and like this coalition of many tribes led by delay all travel through the desert using the north star to to follow mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. a whole other thing they're like oh the the river is the snake we got to find the head of the snake right it, it, it blah 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 there's all of this stuff so we have like, walked from it's crazy
0: Russia <laughs> to like the Congo then east yeah. <laughs> and then followed the Nile up to Egypt i guess yeah
1: and then they and 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 it's revealed that all the people who have been kidnapped are actually being pressed into uh, enslavement in order to build the pyramids. With some mannics. With some mammoths to do the job as well, which is wild because one of those like fun facts you see on the internet sometimes is like, hey, woolly mammoths were around when ancient Egypt was building their pyramids, which, mm-hmm. which is true. But we sort of have to think about the... Uh, extinction of those mammoths and how there probably weren't very many around at that point in human history. Sort of like how we look around and are like, oh yeah, tigers and polar bears are still around, but are there very many? Are there enough polar bears for us to get them to build our pyramids for us? Probably not. There probably weren't that many mammoths at this point in human they history. They
0: certainly either. had a lot of them. And, yeah. you know, again, so like is this the most far-fetched part of the movie? Definitely not. Like, there were mammoths that existed at this time. Was there yeah. a whole horde of them building the pyramids there? Probably not.
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, did mammoths live in Africa? I don't think that they did. <laughs>
0: I mean, not... Maybe I, deep, I, deep past. I, I but... actually don't know what their full range were because there was a couple of different types of mammoths.
1: Um, oh, that's true. I guess I'm thinking of specifically woolly the mammoths. The woolly mammoths,
0: yeah. I, I'm not sure. This is this shows my lack of knowledge of Ice Age mammals. But I needless to say... Too recent
1: for Ben's expertise. Yeah. Needless to say,
0: <laughs> it looked pretty cool slash silly. But... Yeah. Delay gets there. He talks to this person who is like a blind person that lives in... It literally, like horizontally inside of the floorboards.
1: Yeah, I did Do not remember understand that. What, what the fuck was, was going that? on here? It was yeah.
0: like, uh, yeah. And he says that the ones who can stop this, you know, this dynasty of god king sort of Egyptian people is just the one who has the mark of the hunter, but delay doesn't have the mark of a hunter. But it turns out that Evelet has scars on her hand from being whipped by one of her captors that mm-hmm. does form the mark of the hunter. And yeah. then they find that and freak out.
1: Yeah, they're like, oh, no, the this mark on her hand means that Evelet, the girl with the blue eyes, is destined to kill the Almighty. The Almighty is the god king of the leader of the Egyptians, who is, I guess a pharaoh because like yeah uh, yeah Egyptians did i genuinely can't tell leaders like were gods. It, it really what? seems
0: like it's supposed to be egypt but also not and i'm so i guess we can just call it that for lack of a better way of describing it yeah yeah but um it's like
1: they and then it's hard because they never say outright who it is it's sort of like in the new top gun maverick movie they're just like yeah the bad guys are a rogue state with nuclear stuff you're know, mm-hmm. like they don't actually okay. say is it Russia is it China who who is it? They're just like it's a rogue state. Yeah. We can like kind of assume it's supposed to be Russia cuz the airplanes have red stars on their wings, but like what do we actually <laughs> know? It's like that's what this movie is doing. 10,000 BC is like we're alluding to the fact that this could probably be Egypt, but we also screw up a lot of the historical facts, so it could also not be. And yeah. It doesn't matter cuz it's all fiction anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, cuz like they were someone was sort of about to assault Evelette and then other people come in and basically like this the one horseback dude's rival comes in to bust him and that's when they discover the the mark on the hand and that's when some of the folks go report it to the god yeah. king and he goes like wow. Nah! <laughs> um but basically this the struggle is there's still too many people for delay and all of his friends that he's made along his journey to take over here, mm-hmm. unless they convince all the enslaved people to fight with them, but they yeah. kind of are hesitant to do that without having these markers of you know that this other prophecy is going to be true. So now we have like yeah. the four different prophecies overlapping at the same time. It's just absurd. Yeah. It's and
1: ridiculous that they need a workers' revolution. In they need order a workers' revolution. They get the <laughs>
0: everyone. Uh, they get the manics to cause a stampede by just, he just pokes one in the chest with a spear. Yeah. And yeah. it creates stampede. Yeah, they like cut them loose
1: and then he just pokes it and then they stampede down the like ramp that they're using to build the pyramids. And then I guess the workers realize, hey, the mammoths are doing it. Why not us? Let's all rise yeah, up too. Yeah, so they do
0: that for like a hot minute. <laughs> But then they get to the steps of where the god king lives and they're like, there's some hesitation. They don't think they can really do it. So they kind of stop and they say, hey, we'll make a deal
1: there's if also you give somehow, me back. Yeah, they're like, give me back Evelet. Or the Egyptians somehow know that Delay is there for Evelet. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, no, like, we'll give her back to you if you stop revolting against your enslavement. And then mm-hmm. DeLay is sort of like, yes, okay, just give me back Evelet. What's going to mm-hmm. happen to everyone else? And they're like, well, they're going to still be our slaves. And then suddenly DeLay is like, no, never. Yeah, and then
0: he literally goes Brad Pitt from Troy and he yep. just javelin throws his spear 17 billion <laughs> miles directly into the chest of the God King in the most like abrupt villain-killing I can remember yeah, it's where bonkers. he just instantly gets killed and then he just goes, he is not a god. And yeah. then they just go fight and start to destroy everyone.
1: It's like all these little moments that could be cool and they just aren't very cool because this movie botches every, every moment that it could have had. <laughs> it was just changing the stakes constantly. And then yeah. after all of that,
0: one of the horseback men still tries to kidnap Evelette, even though all this, like, basically the movie is pretty much over. Yeah. He tries and to kidnap rest, Evelette. Y'all. He does, but then, you know, they f- fight each other. Um, Evelette actually does something and kind of sort of stabs the guy and falls off the horse.
1: And actually then, does something.
0: <laughs> well, she hasn't been allowed to do anything this like, entire movie.
1: Yeah. She's um, also had barely any lines of dialogue. Like, she is. Purely yeah. been an, an an object, like you said, a MacGuffin to push the plot forward, but without her doing anything or saying really anything.
0: And then just to put the cherry <laughs> on top, let's just have another piece of magical prophecy where she's actually killed by a, I guess, a spear throw by the dying kidnapper horseback guy Yeah. who then Delay goes and kills, but then Evelette dies and we're like, oh, wow. After all that, mm-hmm. Evelette dies and the narrator's like, Come on, you didn't think Evelette could actually die after all. <laughs> this movie is literally exists because Evelette just caused everything to happen. She couldn't possibly die. Yeah. And then it just cuts to the old mother who goes like
1: <laughs> and yeah. like
0: breathes out her life force <laughs> to resurrect Evelette thousands of miles away. And then the movie that that's the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, I, the I, I guess we should have mentioned the old mother stayed with the Yagal tribe back in the Mongolian steppe or wherever they're from. Uh, and as delay has been on this entire journey to get the people kidnapped back, the old mother has been, quote unquote, watching this mm-hmm. through her. I don't know, magic, her spiritual connection with whatever, And so yeah, at this moment, the old mother like gives her life and gives it to Evelet. I guess somehow it's like it's established sort of that she just like is like, and then Evelet goes. I know, (laughs) and and it's like as if she's not stabbed
0: still. Yeah, like yeah, and so she's alive. And then somebody gives them seeds. They say goodbye to their old friends. Oh yeah. And then they literally just start planting plants. And it's like, ah, the dawn of agriculture. We're back in Mesopotamia now. So we've gone from like Russia to the Congo to Egypt and now to Mesopotamia.
1: And that's 10,000 BC. It's bad. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's on Netflix go watch
0: it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like honestly I had a hard time making that plot summary make sense because the plot just uh, makes so little yeah. sense. And there's so much in it that I think just adds unnecessary convolution on top. Mm-hmm. And it's really fraught from like a human perspective in terms of all of the dynamics, like all the tropes and dynamics that are overlapping, but in a nutshell, yeah. it is a strong white savior complex Mm -hmm. strong damsel in distress Mm -hmm. four times prophecy narrative (laughs) at the same time i've never seen anything like it in my life and the thing is like it's still like a visually fun movie i'm not one to say like i'm not one of those people who's like oh you just shut your brain off and just da 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 this movie takes it
1: too far for me to do that (laughs) that's exactly how i felt i i kept wanting to just ignore like the horrendous tropes that they're utilizing in order to tell this stupid story and just focus on like how cool it is to see mammoths running around and like the mammoth hunt looks cool the terror birds are super fucking cool. Even, I mean, there's also this. This movie is like referencing a lot of other movies. Like the terror birds are running through tall grass to kill oh, everyone, yeah. exactly like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. Uh, we, we have Camila Bell as Evelyn, the girl with the blue eyes, who was literally in the Lost World Jurassic Park, <laughs> yeah. like doing similar shit, just being helpless and whatever. Like, there's all these things that are that are referencing other movies that do it better. <laughs> and it's ridiculous and like the stuff doesn't even make any like the one of the most egregious things i saw was like they find they they get to the the tribe the naku who is like very clearly like a, a tribe of like african people they're all black actors and they have a fucking fast runner as a member of their tribe and they're like oh well this tribe actually has someone who can run to the next tribe over talk to them and run back and tell us what's going on and it's like oh my god dude <laughs> Uh there's too many horrible things going on yeah. I can't just focus on the cool saber tooth tiger like I yeah. can't it's and bad. even the
0: saber tooth like has a sense of like deep morality or like yeah or like and it's like what you know so basically this movie Garbage. can't decide how much magic is real because like with yeah. the god king thing it's just a dude like that's like a Scooby Doo moment where it's like oh it's just a dude in a mask yeah it's like yeah that that person didn't have any magic they just got fucking speared in the chest from 45 million yards away mm-hmm. like and there's just nothing there and yet then like the old mother actually has magic and like all these prophecies yeah. also do come true but then even then when delay was saying oh i don't have the mark of the hunter to tick 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 was like, well, you know, prophecies are kind of, you know, they just kind of, they don't always yeah. say exactly what it, what That's things right. are. And I'm what like, did he say? He's you're like, there are multiple me...
1: ways a prophecy can come true.
0: Yeah, you're <laughs> telling me there are four prophecies, and none of them might be the the real one or even matter.
1: Do they oh even all come true? God. Wait, let's make let's see. There's the prophecy that, uh, where is it? Where is it?
0: Yeah, so there's the if and I could you know I've been saying Oh yeah.
1: Whoever kills the leader of the demons will win both Evelet and the White Spear, becoming the next village chief. Okay. Uh and the people think that the demons are mammoths. And then it turns okay, out to be. So horses. there's one prophecy. Um and then there is the prophecy of or the Naku tribe's prophecy, which mm-hmm. says whoever talks to the saber-toothed cat, the smilodon, uh will save uh will save our people. Yep. Okay. There's the prophecy sure.
0: of the blue eyed girl being the one that triggers the change from the old hunter gatherer ways That's to right. finding a new land. That's and right. And then there's the prophecy from the Egyptians that the person with the mark is the one that will bring down their civilization. That's yeah. four prophecies.
1: So <laughs> I and I guess all those prophecies do end up coming true, although it's not the blue-eyed girl who changes the way they hunt. It's uh the guy from the Naku who, who gives them some seeds. Hands them seeds. From Home Depot. From Yes, yeah, it's like a bunch He like hands him like corn kernels. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. what are you gonna do? Plant that in the ground? What are you talking about? It's ridiculous. Oh it's my so there's God. so much ridiculous shit in this movie, it's astounding. Alright, oh. so that's that's the movie. Now, let's I want to talk a little bit about the the science that is completely ignored by this yeah. movie.
0: Uh, I feel like I have I probably will have, you know, a little <laughs> bit less to say than normal just because like I just don't know about this time or these animals as much, but right. I do know some stuff that that couldn't have been.
1: Yeah. And I know a little bit. I uh, one thing I've always loved is anthropology, which is the study of human history and and our evolution and stuff. So I know a little bit about some of the stuff going on at this time. Uh, so let's, let, let, let's just dive in. So this is 10,000 BC at this point in time. First off, let's talk about the terror birds because what even are terror birds? I Like they are of course, different species of giant carnivorous bird that existed throughout the pleistocene which is generally the ice age right um so ben let's let's talk about that a little bit what what are terror birds
0: terror birds is kind of an umbrella term for large predatory birds that were flightless that existed in the cenozoic basically since the age of dinosaurs ended there's been lots okay. of different types of terror birds and some people define certain geographic locations or times as being like the true terror birds versus others. But in my opinion, it encapsulates all of those, which they lived in a number of places. There mm-hmm. were some birds that lived in Europe, like Gastornis a long, long time ago. If you've seen walking with prehistoric beasts, Gastornis is running around eating ancient horses, little tiny mm-hmm. ancient horses. So you have a giant bird eating tiny horses. It's just like what it plays time. tricks on the mind. Yeah. <laughs> but then the majority of what we'd call terror birds were, living in South America later on and basically filling the ecological role that was left vacant by a lot of the carnivorous dinosaurs that used to be mm-hmm. there. So you imagine like, okay, there's no more raptor dinosaurs. There are no more tyrannosaurs. There are no more, etc. So you have this bipedal top predator kind of niche that's empty and these birds that, were a lot smaller before sort of filled the boots Mm -hmm.
1: so these are sort of like are they like ostrich sized birds or how 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 would you how would you define their their size because the way they're depicted in this movie and in walking with prehistoric beasts Mm -hmm. which is an excellent bbc documentary um they they sort of show them like like kind of like an emu or a or a cassowary or an ostrich, except they're kind of more muscular, more frightening. Sort of like you take a bird of prey, like an eagle's head and body, cut off its wings, and give it really big long legs.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean some of them got very big. I saw a skeleton of one at the Burke Museum that Ooh. towered over me. I was like ten feet tall. Cool. So some of them got that tall, and they're all part of this one, I guess, most of the things we consider terror birds are part of this one family. I've never pronounced this ever in my life before, so I'm going to look at this name and try to pronounce it correctly. Forest Rackaday. Wow. Um,
1: I mean, it sounds like you got it.
0: I hope so, yeah. And, you know, they they had a pretty large geographic range. They spanned a lot of time, so there were many different species that were around in Europe, North America, South America, and perhaps even parts of Africa. But towards the end of their reign, they were essentially exclusively in South America. So in the 10,000 BC timeframe, they would have been extinct, but the Mm -hmm. last ones that were around weren't in this area
1: anyway. Yeah. Wow.
0: But they're known for being Strike like...
1: Strike 7,000 for this movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then, you know,
0: it's funny because I was seeing a lot of critique online of this movie, which was panned by the mm-hmm. critics. And people were like, oh, they're trying oh, to yeah. do some dinosaur stuff with these things because they just didn't know that terror birds were real.
1: Oh, my gosh. And I thought that, that, well, that was yeah, That's really funny. That's a yeah, funny critique. Yeah, people were critiquing like,
0: <laughs> oh, they're trying to do some, like, what kind of weird bird dinosaur stuff is this? They're just making stuff up. And it's like, No, I mean, like, that was the thing. They just weren't, like,
1: 20 feet tall like they were in this movie. Yeah, and they weren't there, and they weren't here at that time.
0: Yeah, they weren't there at that time. But, like, you know, there's – I kind of forgive this movie for that because that's just fun creature film kind of stuff. People always blend things from different time periods in creature movies. I don't Mm -hmm. really mind too much. Um, it's more the human story that was bugging me mainly because it was like 15 times more complicated than it had to be. Yeah. And then also was like a racist
1: trope at every turn. <laughs> uh, you gotta, th- you, I mean, they had to throw that in there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but that's, Man. those are terror birds. They tend to be like, they've got big, robust beaks, no teeth, just like uh, all other, you know, modern birds don't have any teeth. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm they often had this kind of sharp curve at the end of their beaks would have been good for ripping some of them had longer thinner beaks some of them had more compact robust beaks but they were running around probably pretty swift runners most of them mm-hmm. and the trouble is that they they may have been outcompeted by some mammal predators later on in some places and that could be part of the reason why they didn't quite make it even until the most recent kind of megafauna extinction, they weren't around anymore for that. Mm. So they were already, they already sort of been replaced. For example, when like the Isthmus of Panama formed, there was this interesting moment where lots of animals from North America could now go to South America. Lots of animals that were in South America could now go to North America, which is called the Great Biotic Exchange. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that for whatever reason, a lot of the North American animals expanded farther and did better than the ones from south america and there's been some hypotheses as to why this might have been the case it could have been the competitive environment in north america was just kind of harsher so they were like better able to compete but Hmm. um that's i need to actually look up when exactly that happened biotic exchange great american biotic exchange so you can play the, the Jeopardy music. <laughs> when did this happen? <laughs> Great American Biotic <laughs> Interchange. Also known as the Gabby. Ooh. Yeah, the migration accelerated dramatically around 2.7 million years ago, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> wow. so at this time there still would have been some terror birds in South America but it, I don't think they fared very well during this exchange because a lot of North American mammalian predators might have sort of taken up some of their ecological role there
1: right that makes sense
0: and there was a North American there were North American terror birds too but long story short they were already out the door at the mm-hmm. time that this movie would have been set okay
1: it's such an interesting time because I feel like oftentimes we think about 10,000 BC, this, this period, 12,000 years ago, as being this sort of like, it's too old for us to think of humans the way we think of people today, or even the way we think of people having lived a hundred, 200, 300, a thousand years ago. Um, so I, I'm curious about like what, what, was humanity doing in this period 10,000 BC because i guess in this movie like we got the terror birds mammoths the smilodon which we'll talk about all these different animals but we also have humans which in our dinosaur movies we don't usually talk about humans as a as a a real beast <laughs> right but but we are and i feel like in this in this time period it's a time that it's such a fascinating moment in human evolution because this is the this is sort of the end of the Stone Age. Stone Age being like Paleolithic, uh, pre-Iron Age before humans started really settling down, producing agriculture, this kind of stuff. But there was interesting things going on in in that time with humanity because usually we mark 10,000 BC as the time when pre-10,000 BC, Humans are hunters, hunter-gatherers. And after 10,000 BC, humans start more and more becoming more sedentary, settling down, doing agriculture and stuff. And I think in this movie, it sort of establishes itself like, hey, this is the moment when humans start settling down and planting things.
0: Yeah. Roughly <laughs> speaking, like it's not that far off. Of when that might have happened and I think you know some folks categorize the stone age broadly speaking to extend even past the
1: beginnings of agriculture into mm-hmm. when they started using bronze oh that yeah that makes sense the bronze age yeah that's and a good so, point
0: yeah that that might extend closer to 5,000 years ago or at 5,000 mm-hmm. BC or so but you know, some of these numbers are a little rough. And again, I'm stretching my knowledge of anthropology because I always thought people were pretty boring. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, what I find interesting about us is is at what point do we start thinking of ourselves as something other than we just got to eat and fuck and make more of us?
0: Yeah, well, I, I actually think that that idea is probably overblown. I agree. Like The hunter-gatherers weren't just hunting and gathering constantly. There's an argument that we actually had more leisure time when we were Mm hunter-gatherers than we did constantly having to tend to agriculture. You mean we didn't have to do this 40 hours a week? Probably not. (laughs) Probably not even close. In order to get our
1: benefits?
0: (laughs) Yeah. There was even some studies because about, you know, there's sort of the idea of, like, Western diseases that we have because of a mismatch between our evolutionary history and our inactivity levels today or our diet today saying Mm -hmm. like our bodies aren't adapted to these sorts of things but it seems like the amount of activity per day that we currently do might not be that different than some Mm -hmm. hunter-gatherer societies based on evidence from the very few that are still around today kind of still around today and then you know looking at other pieces of evidence from the past So certainly there might be quote unquote mismatched diseases. Like we eat things that are much more refined, more calorically dense, et cetera, Mm -hmm. but levels of activity per day. It's not like we were just like running marathons every day during this time (laughs) in order to gather our food. That's not very energy efficient at all. That would be a huge waste of calories compared to doing the bare minimum, basically, which might be pretty much what we were doing. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty fascinating. But so the idea that like we are just like completely running ourselves into the ground until someone had the brilliant idea of planting that kernel of corn in the earth and just sitting there and watching it grow, agriculture was hugely demanding. And in fact, mm-hmm. it might have diminished the variety in our diet because suddenly yeah. we started to do like monoculture and we're just yeah. like, yep, we're just going to only eat this because this is the grain that we have. And, you know, there's the, the argument from, like, was it Jared Diamond? who said that agriculture was the biggest mistake in the history of humanity?
1: I th- I don't want to attribute anything to people that I'm not positive, but I, I think it was him. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about that because did we fuck up? <laughs> and now here we are, straining our planet of its resources, trying to continue spinning our wheels in this way we have for tens of thousands of years. And we're like, oh, shoot, actually pre-10,000 BC was actually better for all of us. Oh yeah,
0: Jared Diamond wrote this piece, yes, the biggest, the worst mistake in the history of the human race. The advent <laughs> of agriculture was a watershed moment for the human race. It may also have been our greatest blunder.
1: <laughs> yeah. F- s- followed closely by uh, Facebook. Yeah. S- second biggest blunder. That's probably so. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Man. Alright, so so humans, we did have culture, we did have societies, we were doing all of these things, we were ta- chatting with each other. This was all a thing that existed for tens of thousands of years, even before 10,000 BC. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's kind of funny to me is that that this movie establishes that before agriculture existed, we could also do these enormous building projects like build pyramids and i think the general consensus among scientists is in order to have enough free time to build those things you needed enough food first mm. and so it's probably likely that whatever culture built stuff on a large scale first probably also had already started agricultural work i because think like having have... a
0: settled yeah like a settled population That was more stable in its location for like very long Mm -hmm. periods of time. Yeah, something that was probably more common after agriculture was established, as well as like basically the idea that we have of civilization. Right. Like, so I'm not saying that things overnight went from like nomadic tribes of thirty people to big civilizations like Mm -hmm. what we think of with Egypt. It was probably a little bit more piecemeal and gradual yeah, and
1: gradual but one thing that i yeah oh sorry i interrupted you oh no go ahead i was just gonna say one thing i love thinking about which is which is connected to um specific agricultural sites like uh gobek i always screw up the name gobekli tepe which is a site in anatolia which is modern day i think turkey um they this is a site that has weird uh, structures, stones built in circles, stones that have been engraved with depictions of animals and people and they're kind of set up in a way that is pretty reminiscent to like Stonehenge in England which is strange because there's similar kind of times when these things would have been built. I think, wait let me double check Gobekli Tepe was it's real old. Built probably between, it probably would have been around 9 or 10,000 BC. I think it's usually dated to just after that period. But one of the things that's fascinating about this site in particular is that it is in this time of like, we're starting to transition to agrarian societies. Mm -hmm. People are settling down. We're starting to have the ability to create a surplus of food, which is a huge if, if you're going to have people whose job it is to uh, do things other than just hunt and make food and get food for your people and, you know, that kind of thing. If you want people to be metal workers, if you want people to be stone workers, if you want people to think about philosophical and religious ideas, if you want people to spend their time creating culture and like not having to just do other things in order to survive, you need a surplus of food. And one of the things that's fascinating about Gobekli Tepe in particular is this is a site where they think it was a religious site first where people would come and worship for extended periods of time, like a couple of months and they'd bring food with them and they'd sit there and they'd eat and they'd celebrate, do whatever their cultural religious things were We don't really know what people actually were doing, but there's all of this like bones and stuff from food that people were eating. So some people think, Oh, this is sort of like a a music festival. (laughs) It's the big outside lands where people come for a period of time and they eat and they hang out and they make connections. And then after they're done, they go off back into their nomadic hunter gathering lifestyles in different areas, but they come back and do this for months at a time. Now, why is that important? Because this is at the very start of agrarian societies starting. And this was all happening in Mesopotamia, which is sort of close geographically to Turkey, where Gobekli Tepe is.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And in order for people to settle down and start working with the land and manipulating it, there has to be a revolution in thought into thinking instead of humans at the mercy, being at the mercy of nature, right? We hope the rains come. We hope stuff grows so we can go gather it. What if humans are actually above nature as opposed to nature being above humans? What if humans are, you know, many religions think this way. What if humans are God's chosen creatures? Or what if humans have some reason that we are at the top of things and we can then use that position to manipulate other things we can domesticate animals we can uh you know sow the earth with seeds and grow food that we need without just waiting for that food to grow on its own and we just happen by it and pick it and you know right. whatever there's a change in there's a revolution in human thought around this time and some people think that sites like go Goble- gobekli Tepe are possibilities of where and how that may have happened by coming together, having this cultural or religious reason to come together and celebrate something. Maybe it was celebrating humanity. Maybe it was celebrating getting through the harvest. We don't really know. But at some point, humans realized we can do this shit to the planet as opposed to having shit done to us. (laughs) We can be a better... Character in our own story than we the got. Gal we with got the blue agency eyes.
0: sort of over <laughs> over the
1: environments right. around us, or at least right. That's so we thought. So, the, and that's what I think is so fascinating about this particular moment in human history is we don't really know where that revolution came from. Was it a person like Delay who came up and was like, "Hey, we need to get all these tribes together because we got to solve some crisis"? Yeah, I hope not the climate's changing and we got it. Yeah. Hopefully it wasn't a dude like delay, (laughs) but who knows? I mean, who knows? We don't really know how it happened, but we know how humans deal with crazy shit today. Not well, but you know, (laughs) humans have always been dealing with crises. And I think it's fascinating to consider this time period separate from this movie because this movie had no, uh, inclination to think deeply about our human story (laughs) the last time i
0: thought carefully about this time period was probably in high school Mm -hmm. when i was taking like world history in sophomore year yeah i think because you know it's always something that separating the reality from the romance of like it's ancient Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, the yeah. dawn of humanity's like uh, agrarian societies, the breadbasket of life, and it's yeah. like, well, how much of this actually happened this way? Yeah, and how much of it is sort of this has become almost a myth unto itself? But yeah, it does seem legend. like, but that area, as far as we know, is one of the earliest places in which we see evidence for the agrarian lifestyle that we're talking about, and also the cultural aspects that go along with having settlements in one place, having larger Mm -hmm. populations, and it also leads later on to a change in diseases that we would get, for example, because communicable diseases in large populations that are settled are a lot Mm -hmm. easier to transmit than they might be in smaller groups that are moving around geographically and probably not interacting with too many other people closely throughout a given person's life. So it's a, it's a really major moment in human history in our story. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to try to figure out sort of the order of the events that would have happened and how we can know that with the evidence that we have.
1: Yeah. And I think it's fascinating too, because we, I mean, this story kind of matters because this is the story of all of us. This is the story of humanity. And I I love thinking about this stuff. Like when we were working at the academy together, one of my favorite things was when someone would come up to the anthropology cabinet in the Naturalist Center because that was, A, the area that I kind of felt the most comfortable with in terms of the, the facts, which it's been a very long time since I've been studying those facts. So I apologize if I got anything wrong here talking about this today. But it also is a, is an area where you can sort of mix the fact with the philosophy and the philosophical thought and thinking about, well, humans were all living in lots of different places, traveling large distances to get their food. And then suddenly at some, well, not suddenly, but at some point we stopped doing that. We settled down. And that in turn created new revolutions of thought that needed to happen. In addition to revolutions in our biological evolution, because like you said, diseases popped up that we didn't have to deal with before, because now we're domesticating animals and living near them. And that's gross. And there are diseases that come from that. There are also diseases that come from just living near a lot of other people all around us, all of a, all of a sudden, or, you know, newly uh, living around all these people. Then you have to think about, okay, well, now all these people are living in one spot you have to create some type of law about how do we treat each other. Mm. We have to treat some create some kind of system of how do we create a fair system of trade. In order to to regulate that and and to administer that, we need to come up with some sort of way to know what this person is saying and this person is saying, Oh, maybe we should think about writing things down so we know you know, and all of these different revolutions happen because we all decide to collectively kind of Live life differently from the way humans had for hundreds of thousands of years. You know, this history goes from 300,000 BC up to 10,000 BC and then it changes. I'm sure there were many changes going on throughout the whole time, but it's fascinating. This is a big change, a very big
0: change. Right. And then, you know, one of the big questions that you were alluding to is like, we have a major cultural evolution, and this is a point in which cultural evolution starts to outpace biological evolution in humans. Yeah. And that's fascinating yeah. because it can lead to the situation that I talked about, which is like the potential for quote unquote mismatch diseases where our bodies aren't adapted to what we're doing now. But then some mm-hmm. people kind of dismiss that idea and just think that it's overblown. Like we're not really doing things that differently to the extent that we just can't handle it entirely. Mm-hmm. It's more to do with what we choose to do or et cetera. But it does signal this moment in which cultural evolution starts to be something that happens at such a fast pace that biological evolution can't possibly hope to keep up because in the matter of a single generation, we can have a transformation. And that seems to, you know, Mm -hmm. accelerate it as we get in past the stone age to the bronze age to the iron Mm -hmm. age to the industrial Mm -hmm. revolution to now when somebody that was born in 1900 and lived until 2000 would have been around prior to the invention of the airplane and then would have passed away with the internet.
1: Yeah. I love, I love thinking about that because my own, my, my great grandma, she had a scar on her chin because when she was a little girl, she was born in the early 1900s. When she was a little girl, she fell out of a horse and buggy. And then she ended up when when she had my my grandma, when when my grandma was young, my great grandma was working for United Airlines. And like that amount of time is very uh, bizarre to think about. Like you lived through horse and buggy pre-cars, and then all of a sudden you're working for an airline. <laughs> <And it's> nuts. <laughs> It's nuts to think about how much change has happened. And if we look back at 10,000 BC and the changes that were happening then, it was not as quick as it is now, but it matters because how did people react to those changes? How did people you know, grasp at their old way of doing things? And how did people recognize, hey, old ways of doing stuff are not necessarily bad, but maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's an easier way. Maybe there's a more efficient way. But then there's all these other people who are like, no, nothing new do it the old way. Cause I'm scared. And it's like, well, how many generations of humans have to deal with that kind of tension? I guess it's all of us. Yeah. It just keeps it probably happens crazy. all the
0: time. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, Man. I think it's probably time for us to wrap up this chat about 10,000 BC and 10,000
1: BC adjacent business. Yeah. For such a, bad movie it really got us talking philosophically about <laughs> human history yeah <laughs>
0: I mean it's like it, it it makes me wonder like can a movie like this be done in a way that isn't sort of like offensively wrong mm-hmm. and I think yeah, that it can but also like it could be something where we always look back on this and it turns out to be something you know Different than we expected, and that kind of ignorance that we have about it will end up looking back uh, in the future mm-hmm. as those details emerge. Yeah,
1: fascinating. It is interesting how this movie, 10,000 BC, and the animated movie Ice Age are whirlwinds apart in terms of their dedication to science and <laughs> depicting life at least somewhat accurately. the the cartoon Ice Age is much better than this movie both scientifically and also as a movie (laughs) yeah until they start bringing
0: in the dinosaurs in Ice Age then I would vaguely agree
1: with you well once it made enough money they were like yeah we don't have to pay attention to that shit anymore we'll make Ice Age 4 have aliens who cares yeah who cares (laughs) put some minions in there it doesn't matter (laughs) All right, y'all 10,000 BC, 10,000 BC, total garbage, total garbage. Yeah. Out of, um, out of, um, out of five, um, paleolithic hand axes, how would you rate this?
0: (laughs) I would rate this 1.5 hand axes.
1: Yeah. I was going to give it just one. It's not, that's fair. It's It's a very bad movie. It's barely worth your time. If you're just curious at seeing how bad it is.
0: Yeah, uh, I was going to say, like, it, it, <laughs> I actually think it might be the worst movie that we've seen so far for the podcast. And I, I don't take that lightly. We watched some, you know, we watched one million years B.C. Or no, what was it? A hundred million, million years B- B.C. A hundred
1: million B.C. A
0: hundred million B.C. That was like very bad for different reasons. Yeah. And that it was like just super low budget and all that. But that was kind of like hilarious and this yeah. one was just, like, not hilarious.
1: <laughs> that, see, this movie had everything going for it in terms of a big-name director and writer, uh, lots of money behind it. It's a Warner Brothers movie. It's a big studio. And then, like, 100 Million BC is way more fun because it had nothing going for it, and they pulled it off in, like, spectacularly weird fashion. And, like, yeah, it's more enjoyable watching that than it is this because you're like, ah, oh, you could have done not this, but you didn't. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anywho, Jeez. David and I are actually going to hopefully get together in person to watch Jurassic World Dominion. That's right. And we'll be sure to give you some juicy
1: updates on that very soon. Yeah, that one's, that one's going to be fun. Oh, yeah. We'll it's see our, it's our civic it's duty. Good. <laughs> so far, I've heard nothing good from critics, but, you know, what do critics know?
0: Yeah, what do critics know?
1: Who cares? Side note, what did uh, 10,000 BC, uh, if anyone is interested in its Rotten Tomatoes score, it's got a tomato meter of 9% Ooh, and a rough. 37% audience score, which is Ooh, probably. That's real low. Um, I don't know why it's so high.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, I actually feel like for these sorts of movies, the audience score is often way higher than I would expect. Yeah, that's and true. And that's actually pretty low. <laughs>
1: Yep. Yeah. Some of these some of these takes on here are uh, <laughs> just someone just put it's a horrible movie. <laughs> That's a simple a remarkably beautiful yet soulless film a prehistoric train wreck and then someone said those stampeding mammoths are the jewel of this wild adventure film and I'd agree because we don't see that very much and it is the best thing that happened.
0: It is, yeah. They really were getting moving. No doubt about it. Man.
1: Well, all right, y'all. Thank you for listening to our conversations about this ridiculous movie, 10,000 BC. I hope you watch it. And if you do, let us know what you think of that fucking story. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Ben, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: David, great to see you as always. And I appreciate your passion and verve for all things anthropological
1: hell yeah i love thinking about us as just another animal as as opposed to you know the chosen one
0: when i do that too much it's terrifying i I start analyzing everything like i'm an ecologist and it's not good
1: yeah it gets really interesting when you start thinking about human behavior in terms of our ecological connection to nature and then oh yeah well then why am i looking at twitter i know (laughs) yeah it's wild (laughs) Anywho, folks, be kind to yourselves and each other. We love you all. Thank you for listening. This has been Real Beasts with David and Ben. See you next time.